water bottle under there, but there was not. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis 35. Genesis 35. And the children can be dismissed to junior church up through grade four this morning. Genesis 35. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 15, and this is my last uh, message from the book of Genesis for a little while. We're going to move into the New Testament. That might excite a few people. And uh, I saw a thumbs up there. Uh, I, I love the Old Testament. It just, is, it just fascinates me. There's so much rich connectivity to the new, and, uh, but I can appreciate people's excitement for the new as well. So it's all God's Word, and it's exciting. So we're going to be looking uh, next week, Lord willing, at the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, we're not going to complete the book in one sitting or in one stretch, that is. <clears throat> we're going to be looking at it in pieces, kind of like how we've done Genesis. I'm going to come back again and finish the uh, book of Genesis with the life of Joseph, and then um, we'll come back again to the other sections of 1 Corinthians. And so, what we're doing here is our last message. Um, We see in chapter 35 that uh, time has passed, and there's been a lapse, and Jacob had been passive in the last chapter, chapter 34, that had some devastating effects upon his family and uh, there was a lot, of, a lot of difficulty for the people in the land of Canaan as well because of his passivity. It didn't just affect his family. It went widespread into the community as well. And, uh, but what we're seeing here is that, that uh, the after effect of Jacob's vow, he had made a vow at the beginning of our getting to know him that he made this vow in Bethel before he was going to leave the land of Canaan. And as he He's now being encouraged by God to fulfill this vow. It's time. It's been long enough. It's time for him to make good on what he had committed himself to the Lord. And uh, a vow is a a word that's not often used today, and I have to ask you, and I have to ask myself, do we really understand what a vow is? I don't know if, if you ever made a vow maybe outside of like marriage. Marriage is a vow, and it's a very important vow, but have you ever made a vow to the Lord? Um, But what it is, it's a voluntary expression of devotion, usually in fulfillment to a condition. So, a vow is a pledge of one's faith in God that He's capable of keeping His Word, and then there's a there's a reply piece to it that I will do this if the Lord does this, but I know that God is going to do this, so I'm going to prepare myself to do what I'm, I'm giving myself uh, for the Lord. Now, vows are really acts of worship. They're, they're uh, an expression of your heart that you believe that God is able to perform uh, His, His, His uh, promises to you. Now, Sometimes people don't make vows because they, they misunderstand what they are. Vows are not intended to be a way of testing the Lord. They should not be used as a fleece before the Lord. Vows are actually a statement uh, that you trust that God will give you success. So, there is a, 
there is a condition, yes, but it's a condition with implication that I will do this because I know that God will do His part. And so, it's important for us to understand that if we make a commitment to the Lord, God keeps all of His commitments to us, we ought to be faithful to keep the commitments that we make to Him. So, vows are not something that we ought to take, uh, they should not be a rash uh, uh, running into. Uh, the book of Proverbs, verse uh, chapter 20, verse 25 says, it is a snare to say rashly, it is holy, that is to dedicate something in your house to the Lord, and then after reflect only after you've made that statement. Because God will keep His part, and He expects you to keep, his, keep yours. It's not a light thing. And uh, it shouldn't be something that we run into, unex, you know, without giving it proper thought. I think wedding vows are a good example of that. Uh, we're making a vow between ourselves and the people, or the person that we're marrying, but we're also making a vow commitment to the Lord to keep, to keep this agreement. And I, I, the traditional vows are actually encouraging a person when they stand at the altar. Typically, the pastor will say to them, are you prepared? Are you going to just take some time to think through what you're about ready to do up on the upper platform? Be, don't go into this unadvisedly. Don't go into this uh, uh, without reverence. Don't do it lightly, but do it deliberately thinking about what you're committing yourself to be doing. And so, typically you see at the beginning of the service, you see somebody, you, you go through the, the vow as if it's going to be done, and you ask the person, are you willing to do this? And when they say, I do, then they come up to the platform, and then they make the official vows. And it's important for us to understand the significance of these things. Now, vows on that level are not often entered into by most of us other than at our wedding day. But I think it's important for us to understand that a growing faith in God will cause us to make vows to the Lord. Just as Jacob made a vow to the Lord. I, I, to give you an example of this, I remember when I was in, in high school, I was often challenged by youth leaders to commit myself to the service of the Lord, that whatever would come in my life, that I would make a commitment to do whatever He would want me to do. He would, they would often encourage us maybe to even to come forward and, and, and pray and ask God to, to bless us in our life, but also make a prayer of statement of commitment to follow the Lord wherever He would want us to go. And I honestly believe in retrospect that those are useful things as long as we don't see that we're earning merit through those things, but if they are genuine expressions of a heart that loves the Lord, they ought to be encouraged. They ought to be entered into but we ought not do it rashly either. I remember at, at other times in my spiritual development that I had made a vow to the Lord to give. There were time periods in my life where I wasn't giving to the Lord as I ought to, and it suddenly struck me that I, I have a God who has given me infinitely more than I could ever give to Him. And out of that joyful realization, I came to a point where I realized that I, I'm going I'm to commit myself to give to the Lord and to His church. And these things, I believe, are appropriate, but they ought not be made rashly. 
But whatever vow we may enter into, it needs to be a faith commitment and a response to His grace, just as Jacob responded to the God's grace in his life at Bethel. Now, God is pleased, and I think this is an, a, a part that's often missing in a vow, and we need to understand that God is pleased when we make much of Him. That is also what a vow is doing. We're saying that we find God so important in our life that we're going to subordinate all of these other things in our life and exalt and elevate God above all. And this is what uh, Jacob did in Bethel when he realized that his God had made a commitment to him that he would never leave him and not forsake him in the, when he was outside of the land of Canaan. And I think it's important for us in this text, I know we haven't read it yet, we're going to start reading it and breaking it into pieces, to realize that God delights to see His children follow through with faith commitments, because that's what a vow is. It's a faith commitment, and God delights in us fulfilling those vows. And I want us to see, we're going to read verse 1 and think about how that God cares about the follow-through of our faith commitment In verse 1 of chapter 35, we read this, God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. And we have to see the significance of this verse after all of what had happened in Genesis chapter 34. There was a lot of depravity. There was a lot of darkness that we saw occurring in chapter 34. And now God is initiating. He's coming in to Jacob after 10 years of sitting there in the land, not actually going to Bethel. It's God coming to him and saying, arise, go up to Bethel. There was a lot of despair there. He was passive in his leadership. But I think that ought to encourage us that God cares about the commitments of faith that we make to Him. And He wants us to fulfill those things. And it's important for us to see that while we saw amazingly dark details last Sunday, we need to see in this moment God's amazing love and His grace towards Jacob. He, He picks him up off of his feet, He dusts him off, and He points him back in the direction in which he ought to be going. You need to get to Bethel. You don't need to stay here in Shechem where all of this, this carnage has taken place. And so God encourages Jacob to fulfill his vow. What was his vow? I think it's probably good for us to think carefully about that because it's been, it's been weeks since we've been in Genesis 28. And the verses are on the wall for us here. And Jacob said these words back at Bethel. He said, if God will be with me, and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my Father's house in peace, the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Why is this such a big deal for God Why is it so critically important to God that that Jacob would make good on his faith commitment to return to Bethel, to kind of enshrine that place as God's house, God's uh, place of blessing upon his life? Why would God make such a big deal about this? 
And I think at this point we have to ask ourselves, is God, is God merely an egomaniac? Does He really only care about Himself? That He would re- request or instruct Jacob to go up and then go to this place in Bethel and then make a big deal about Him as God? I think we have to honestly ask that question because there are a lot of people in the world in which we live that assume that God is just an ego-centered kind of personality. You know, that God wants all of this glory for Himself. But I think it's important to ask that question because it leads us to realize that you and I were made for the glory of God. We were made for the making much of Him in all of His glory. And God knows that. He knows we were created for this purpose. He also knows that without glorifying Him, we can't fully have a peace of heart. We can't have a We can't have true joy. We can't have true happiness. That doesn't exist outside of God. And so when we make much of God and when we elevate Him and denigrate the things that we see in this world, we actually get the joy that God wants us to have. God's not doing this because He's an egomaniac. He's doing it because He knows that you will be fruitless and you will be unhappy unless you find God most satisfying in your life. We have to make much of Him, and when we make much of God and and glorify Him, we find true peace and joy and contentment. A while ago, I used our cat, Rusty, as an illustration of what it might look like to make much of something. Does anyone remember that illustration? I have a cat that's a beautiful cat. It's a mouser. You know, it, 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 can, it can get every moving little creature in my yard. He's a great attack animal. But on Sunday, Rusty went missing. And by Wednesday of this week, I was about ready to write his obituary into the sermon. But he showed up. I think that's why they have nine lives. But at some point, Rusty's not going to have nine lives. And he's going to expire. And you know what? As much as we had attachment for that animal... That animal can't give us the true happiness and joy that only God can give us. And when we make much of the things in this world, like cats, like cars, like even marriages, which in the end are not eternal, what we're doing is we're missing out on the glory and the joy and the contentment that comes only from God and Him alone. God cares so much about our joy, He knows that we can't have it unless we make much of Him. He's not an egomaniac. He is a deeply compassionate, loving God to tell us these things. And He wants you to make much of Him because He knows that when you do that, you will gain peace and contentment. 
And so vows are about making much about God. I want us to also see here that follow-through on our commitments requires a courageous faith in God. It's a demonstration of our faith in God. Verses 2 through 4, let's see what happens after God instructs Jacob to go back to Bethel. In verse 2, it says, So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to God, who answers me in the day of my distress, and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had, and the ring that that were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. There is a courageous faith that's required here. Follow-through is very difficult. I understand that. How many of you get a notification from your doctor or from the dentist that you have an appointment coming up on your phone? Like, that's a relatively new thing, but why does that happen? Because people have a hard time of following through. And that's difficult, I think. And, and we, we, we are hesitant at times to even make commitments because we know that the difficulty of follow-through is there, but spiritual commitments are uniquely elevated above the appointment books that we keep. Commitments of faith are actually impossible without the powerhouse of grace behind you to push you. And so we need reminders of God's mercy and His grace, no matter how hard it is that we need to do what we have to do. I mean, to go to Bethel, the communication from God was a direct reminder that His God had not left Him, that God had been gracious, and God had kept Him. And so it propels Him to to instruct his family about the importance of following Christ, or following God and going to Bethel. Of course, the application is to us today. Jacob needed to confront his family, and that's hard. You know, those who are most close to you are the hardest to challenge. We don't want to do it, but there are times where we have to address those who we are close with. And sometimes that fear or that family can keep us from doing what we ought to do. But regardless of that, that fear of man, we might have to take that fear of man and cast that idol into the pit. Or whatever idol that we need to address with our family. And there are so many idols that can can take our attention away from God and give give us small, small substitutes for our great God. What keeps us from making much about God? And that's, if you can answer that question, what is it that keeps us from really sinking ourselves into a relationship with God and finding Him all enjoyable? When you can answer that question of what that is, you've identified an idol that has to be tossed and buried, just as His family had to bury their idols. I don't know what your, prayer, what your idol might be. It might be the praise of men. It could be sensual pleasure. It could be the feeling of power and respect and, and how people perceive you. 
It might even be a paid-off mortgage. Whatever that idol is, you've got to put it away. You've got to purify yourself just as Jacob was instructing his family to do so. And so you've got to repent. How do you put away? You repent and you, you bathe in the glories of the gospel of grace. And so we have to return to Bethel. We have to return to the place where we first met Jesus. We have to go back to the gospel and apply those precious principles to our life. There is a radical symbolism in this moment here when, when the family members take these little household gods and they put them in the ground. The word hide, it might be hide in your translation or it might be the word bury, but it's a rare Hebrew word that actually has more of the idea of like of being buried in a disrespectful manner. You know, the things that we hold on to as substitutes of God, we tend to cherish. We can't cherish them. We have to cast them off as what they are, filthy substitutes for the true and living God. And so finally, what's really unique in this, if you recall Rachel, remember the household gods that she had hid in her saddlebag while she was, where the way the woman was upon her? That was a disrespect to those gods. Now the disrespect is complete. They're cast off like garbage. And that's what's required. But that takes a courageous act of faith to do so. It's important for us to see here that God is really delighting in our response to fulfill our vows, that, that He's very interested. He's in, in, working in all the background. He's wanting to make sure that we're successful. And so, God, I think it's important for us to realize that God provides all of our needs so that we can carry out these faith commitments. Look at verses 5 through 8. Verses 5 through 8, it says, And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, and, he, and all the people who were with him. And he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. And so he called its name Elon Bakuth. There's two events that occur in this little paragraph. First is the most important one that we were looking at this, this morning is that the idea of, of, of the protection, supplying the resources to make sure that Jacob could be successful in getting to Bethel without any fear, supplying all that he needed to get there. And there's also the honoring of a faithful servant here. And I, I don't want to distract here from the main idea, but Deborah gets greater recognition than her master, Rebecca. And as the Scripture is writing, this is a subtle rebuke to Rebecca for how she had deceived her own husband. There's a bit of a contrast there of someone, you know, is doing right and God's providing for them, you know, honor and respect, that is Deborah, 
There is also the on the greater side, you have Jacob being provided for in all of his need as well. God sent a great terror upon these towns and the cities that they passed. God was ensuring that they could carry out the vow of faith that they had made. And I think it's important to ponder this for a moment, just how important this principle that God is invested in your sanctification, your growth in your faith commitments. In the New Testament, Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23 through 24, and it's on the wall for us here. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And we like to quote that last sentence, but we fail at times to see the context to which it's being applied, this precious promise. God is interested to ensure that your sanctification takes place. There are times when we get off the road. There are times when we, we, we linger too long in Shechem. And God has to come to us and speak to us and say, get up, get on the road. This is where you're supposed to be going. But that is a mercy of God, a grace of God, because He's deeply invested. He wants you to be successful in your spiritual life. And I think that we need to be very careful not to ignore some of the protections that God has placed into the Christian's life. And the greatest protection, yes, is the Holy Spirit, but as equally important is the church of God itself. Input into your life from fellow believers who are filled with the Spirit is a significant part of the protection of your way to the celestial city. You know, I have personally experienced periods of peace in which I, I was thriving in my walk with the Lord. And then there have been points along the way where I hadn't, and then somebody came to me and said, look, do you realize what you're doing here? Do you realize that there's a little bit of a darkness here? And that entrance into my life picked me up and put me back on the pathway that I ought to be going. We need to be very careful not to misinterpret the shepherd's staff coming down upon us, maybe through other people in our life, as not God's protection. It is God's protection indeed because He wants you to get back on the path. He wants you to, to follow Him. Don't despise that discipline of the Lord. The Lord disciplines the one He loves. He chastens every one, every son whom He receives. So if you are a son or a daughter of the Lord. Chastening and discipline are a necessary part of confirmation that you are a part of the family of God. God's going to make sure that you get there. And so Jacob arrives in Bethel, and one day we will arrive at our Bethel. We will enter into heaven. And that will be because of the great mercy of God to ensure that we are sanctified in soul and spirit and body. He keeps all of His promises. In the last paragraph 
here points to the truth that I believe that God delights in giving us grace upon grace as we follow through with our faith commitments. Verses 9 through 15, let's read these verses. It says, God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel, and God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come for you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. And then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. And he poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. And so Jacob called the place where God had spoken with him Bethel, the house of God. See, God came to Jacob and makes this verbal blessing to him a second time. It is a very unique re-expression of the Abrahamic covenant, the promise made to Abraham. It's a, a, a a unique statement of the promise that God had made to Isaac. But it's really important for us to see what's going on in this moment, that it's not merely just a restatement, as if God forgot what He had promised to Jacob. What this is, is encouragement and a display of God's intention to reward acts of faith. You see, with the Abrahamic covenant, God came to to Abraham, and you remember that night and that dream that he had and the cutting of those animals into pieces and splitting them up. God came to Abraham by his own volition, his own choice, and adopted Abraham as his own son. Made promises of unconditional grace to him. And out of response to that initiation of God the Father, Abraham begins to take steps of obedience, statements of faith that God made these promises to me. So therefore, I'm going to start obeying because of what he has said believing that one day he will keep his word. And so God comes a second time after he has circumcised himself, doing a very hard thing, and repeats the promise of blessing to him and his offspring. A statement that that God delights to reward and gives us grace upon grace. We have it already, but those faith commitments please him, and he delights to give us as are we respond to him by faith. Both of these acts are applauded by God, Abraham's circumcision, Jacob's addressing his family and taking leadership and returning to Bethel. God's applauding this and saying, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. And this is how God is. He tells us that He's for us, that He's not against us. We take steps of faith based upon what He has told us. We obey. We repent of sin. We, we turn to Christ. We grow. And in response to that, God comes again to us and affirms again that He has never left us. He will never forsake us. 
and He gives us blessings of peace and joy. This is how God works. He gives us grace upon grace. Just think of what will be ours when we enter into glory. You see, God delights to see His children follow through with their faith commitments. The question that I think is a, an application here as we, we, we finish this thought is, how well do we know God? Who is God to us? Jesus, at the end of His life, told a story about a, a wealthy man who had several servants. He gave them each a few talents. One he gave five, the other he gave three, and to another he gave one. He told them that he was going to go away for a while, but when he would return, he would take account of what they've done and reward them based upon their service. Well, when he returned, he found that one of his servants doubled, doubled the talents from five to ten. Another servant, he found he doubled two talents up to four. And he said to them, good job, I'm going to let you have more. I'm going to give you greater opportunities. I'm going to give you greater joys. And he says to the two servants, enter into the joy of your master. The last guy who had been given one talent was an indolent person. He had no respect for his master. He didn't really know his master. And he said to the master when he was giving his account, he said, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So it, I was afraid, and I went away, and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, take what is yours. The master was incensed by this guy. He was incensed because he didn't understand who he was. And Jesus is using that as an analogy to say to us who have tasted grace, how well do we know God? Is He a God who delights to give us grace upon grace, or do we look at Him as a, as a, as a, as a killjoy who just reigns on our parade? He asks us to do these hard things, you know, like assemble with believers. What kind of God is He? You mean I have to make much about God? You mean, you mean He wants me to give my income? Oh, come on. What kind of God is that? How do you, how do you view God? Is He an egomaniac who just wants all this glory and attention and doesn't really care about you? No. He is a God who deeply loves you and tells you what you need to hear even though you don't want to hear it because He knows that you won't have true joy without Him and without His Word. See, God delights to see His children follow through with their faith commitments. And when a person genuinely hears the gospel, what they're genuinely hearing is a heavenly Father who is grace, gracious, and kind, who delights to reward His children. And so, it's easy to respond to the Word of God when it's taught. It's easy to say, I want this, because we can actually see who God is.
There are some who come to the gospel and some who respond quickly, and they, shri- they shrivel up because they have never fully understood who God was and what He was like. They bury their talent in the ground. They don't make good on their faith commitments. And the question that comes out of this is, how well do we know our God? Are we like the woman at the well who found everything she could ever hope for? A poem here in closing. Lord, I crawled across the barrenness to You with my empty cup, uncertain in asking any small drop of refreshment. If only I had known You better, I'd have come running with a bucket. How well do we know our God? Do we really believe that God delights to see His children make good on their faith commitments? What idols need to be destroyed in your life so that you can see God for who He really is? Bury those idols. Maybe it's time for you to make a faith commitment. Maybe it's time for you to say, Lord, You are my all in all. And to show you that you are my all in all, I'm going to put aside the distractions that keep me from the body of Christ. I'm going to put aside the excess spending so that I can give out of joy to you. I'm going to take a stand in my workplace, and I'm going to do right no matter what my work crew is doing. Maybe you don't stand for the Lord in your workplace because you can't see the God who will reward you for your obedience. Why bury the idols? Because of God. He delights in you. He loves you. He died for you. And He delights to reward His children and He does so. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank You for Your love that You demonstrated for us on the cross, that while we were yet sinners, You died for us. Nothing you would ask for us, of us, is unreasonable. Lord, maybe it's that we have an unreasonable view of who you are. And Lord, would your spirit work to change our hearts so that they would beat with a love and a thirst for you alone. And we ask this in Jesus' name.